It can often seem a little overwhelming to confront this system of racism that we're living in. But last week, Michelle Mercer and I got into a conversation about how we can affect change within our circles in order to make the changes that we'd like to see. We also got into talking about a lot of other things that I think you will find pretty interesting. Michelle is a business strategy coach, and so she brought a little bit of her expertise to our conversation. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that conversation, I invite you to do so, but not before we get into this conversation with Eliza Vancourt. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone, sometimes I'm dining with friends, and sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Eliza Van Court is an in-demand consultant, speaker, and writer on communications, career, and workplace issues, and women's empowerment. The founder of the Actors Workshop of Ithaca, she is also a Cookhouse Fellow at Cornell University, an advisory board member of the Performing Arts for Social Change, a diversity crew partner, and a member of Govern for America's League of Innovators. Her first book, A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, publishes on May 11, 2021. For your opportunity to win a copy of her book, be sure to listen to this interview to the very end. And now, Eliza Van Court. Hello, Eliza. How are you? I am so excited to be on your show, Sidrola. Thank you so much for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure. I am excited to have you here as well. It was, I've, I was really excited when you said yes, and I started getting notifications about, you know, when you're going to be on, and here we are. So uh, thank you. <laughs> so before we get into all of the heavier stuff that we tend to talk about here on Diversity Dish, I would like for you to introduce yourself to the audience by telling us something about yourself that not very many people know. <laughs> um, let me think. Wow, there's a lot of stuff a lot of people don't know. Um, oh, well, I guess uh, two things would be, although I just did put this on my bio yesterday, but until the, uh, no one reads Goodreads. So um, I'm a complete <laughs> sci-fi nerd absolutely the worst sci-fi nerd ever. I actually think we might be in the matrix. I mean, not really, but I do suspect. Um, and, um, and I also um, have almost every word to West Side Story memorized. I guess those are two fun facts. Really? <laughs> yes. I love it. I love West Side Story. And oh, oh. I, I often say things that relate to the matrix, like, you know, once you know it's like being in the matrix once you know you can't go back <laughs> that's right i say the same thing i always say you know what the ebenezer is dirty and gritty but it is real and it's that real. is it's real and that is 
for me the better place to be, even though sometimes you want to be replugged in, but you can't go back. <laughs> you can't go back. You can't go back. Once you've seen, you can't unsee. That's right? right. That's just how it goes. So I love that. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk a little bit. I know that you have a book coming out. The title is the, is the Women's Guide for Claiming Space. Is that the correct title? Almost. It's A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space. Stand tall, raise your voice, be heard. Love it. Tell us just a little bit about your book as well. Um, The book is about claiming space and it came about because of my childhood and because of actually being hit in the head with a car while riding my bike, which we can talk about at some point. Um, And uh, it, while I was recovering, because I lost a lot of my ability to communicate after my head injury, I started researching and watching people and watching myself. And I realized that women who really stepped into their power. I was looking kind of for a magic bullet to help me figure out how to recover. And I realized there was no magic bullet as is often with life. Nothing is that simple, but I noticed that women who had five things that they really were mindful about tended to be able to claim space and they just had better lives. And so that those five things create the five pillars of my book and the five parts of my book. And it's really about claiming space and claiming space is simply living your life unapologetically and bravely. And that's what it's about is learning concrete tools to do just that. I love that. And why, is there a particular reason um, why you care about women claiming space? Um, (laughs) Well, I think we all go about things from our own experience. So I would like to say there's some, you know, really high reason why I love talking about women. But the truth is, I am a woman. My friends are women. And (laughs) uh, I experience things that men do not. And I am fascinated by why is one group treated one way and one group treated differently? And how does that impact them? And how can they mitigate that? And as an acting teacher for 20 years, I saw the impact of what it is like to be a white woman who experiences this or a brown or black woman or a white man and, and just the different ways people are communicate because of that, because of how they're treated. And for me, it's just fascinating. So the book, of course, is from the experiences of research, but also my sisters. And I, when I say sisters, I mean the tribe of women that I love mm-hmm. in my life and, um, and my own experiences. And I think often we write, obviously, from our own experience. Yeah, I think that we can't help but write from our own experience. I know when we're, when I've been studying about, you know, building a business and that sort of thing, it's always like, well, who's your avatar? And I think to myself, well, I'm my avatar. Like, I can only speak from my position, right? With the things that I've, you know, very clearly experienced and be able to share that with other people. I read your article about authenticity I think you wrote an article that was like yeah I think it was don't be authentic but I think it was it was on LinkedIn and it was very interesting to me because what it was what you talked about was how authenticity true authenticity can only actually comes from a position of power so if you are in a position of power you can be truly authentic but the person that may not hold the same power as you may not be able to be as authentic because they have other things to consider and to think about in being authentic. Can you talk a little bit 
about that because I thought it was such an interesting perspective. Yeah, well, this actually came about because um, <laughs> I had a I had a boyfriend who would say these things that just blew my mind. And the answer <laughs> that we're going to call him Chad, just because I don't like that name, and I feel like calling him Chad. And I, I, I think protect, Chad is good, <laughs> <laughs> and I also want to protect his identity because that yeah. that wouldn't be that would not be nice. But he was often, and he was a, a white man with a lot of power, and he would often say, "Well, that's just how I feel." That's just how I feel. And I started thinking about it and I thought, wow, there are very few people who can say whatever they feel all the time. And there is, and what I talk about, I don't know if it's not an, about not being authentic, but it's the privilege of sharing your feelings. Mm -hmm. I am sure I'm gonna, and I don't wanna put my experience on you, but I'm going to guess that as a black woman, if you went around sharing every feeling you had, <laughs> it might not go over well because you're not. <laughs> It might stuff. not go over very well at all. You're right, right about that. Exactly. And that's, and that's why I found the article so interesting because I thought to myself, well, as authentic, I'm as authentic as I can be. And depending on the situation that I'm in, how authentic can I be without necessarily causing myself harm? Right? That's right. How authentic can I be without causing those that I love harm or being labeled something right now? I'm not, I'm getting less and less concerned with the labels that are put on me because I realize that some of these labels are simply put on as soon as I walk into a room, doesn't matter if I open my mouth or not. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. hearing that authenticity is, can, or, you know, being fully authentic, or like you said, being able to just fully say what you want to say and how you feel in any situation is not everyone's no. reality. No, I mean, that's a very few people get to do that. That's one little minority of the population, which is white men. Literally, which they're is... probably, you know, they're probably the people who can do it the most. I mean, I have, it's interesting what you say when you walk in a room, because my dear friend, Dr. Nia Nunn, told a story about how her student says when she walks in a room her blackness walks in first uh you know and when right. I walk in a room my womanhood walks in first but not you know so she's navigating all this other stuff and obviously she can't say everything she wants because her blackness walks mm -hmm. in first and she's going to deal with racism but the other I mean I'll tell you a really do you have time for me to tell? I, I'd love to share a story. Absolutely. Please okay. share away. Okay. We have time. So the, my favorite story about the, this comes, and I have, I am very, very, very blessed in that I have the most incredible women in my life. And that has been probably one of the reasons why I have gotten through a lot of the things I've gotten through. So one of those women is Kim Munson Burke, who is my Morpheus. If we're going to go to the matrix. Yes. And I, <laughs> did, I did read that about you, about Kim, rather you did yeah. write about Kim. Yeah. Kim yeah. is amazing. And she, there was this moment. I remember we're all sitting around the table. There were maybe two white guys there. And then the rest of the people were people of color, white women. And we were talking about words, you know, what words people like to be called and, you know, what, what, how we should navigate that. And this white guy who's actually a wonderful, wonderful human being, but in the moment he really missed up. He said, well, I don't understand this. I mean, I don't understand why I have to be so worried about these words. Like, I just don't get it. Why? I mean, I, why do I have to think about these words all the time? And Kim, who's hilarious, when she gets upset, she sort of spreads out. And I know something's about to happen. She once said to me, oh, I do that because I'm trying to relax. I'm like, you do realize that looks terrifying, right? <laughs> she kind of spreads out. And then she puts her hand up and she says, I got to stop you right there. And then she says, 
all of us, you know, pointing to everyone who's not a white dude at the table, all of us spend all day navigating around you. We mm -hmm. spend our whole day trying to figure out how to actually mitigate your experience and your feelings and making sure everything's okay with you because you mm -hmm. are usually in power. And mm -hmm. now we're asking you not to say a few words, a few words, mm -hmm. and you're having a hard time with that. And then she pauses and says, I think maybe you should examine that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, right? We're, I think the less privilege you have, yeah, the less people tolerate you saying what you think because you're dealing with more stuff and you can't, you know, if you said it, people are going to have reactions. And my feeling is white men really have to start realizing that they should not say anything they want because not all of us can respond in kind. And right. so they need to start developing some awareness and white women have to be aware when it comes to our brown and black sisters, that there are things that we can say that if they said it, they'd be an angry black woman. So, you know, it's all about sort of understanding where you are in the privilege scale and making sure you're not just saying whatever you want just because you can. Yes. There's something that I, I often tell people when I'm, when I'm teaching or when I'm talking about racism, and that is that there is a, there is a color scale and mm -hmm. the whiter you are, the writer you are, right. And the darker mm -hmm. you are, the more wrong you are. And mm -hmm. so it goes by proximity. Mm -hmm. And so you have to understand the scale in order to understand the privilege that you hold within that scale, right? Mm -hmm. Because like you said, we can't all just say what we want to say. Right. And, you know, I was, I was talking to someone this week about something that was happening at work and she was telling me about this situation that, that had happened. And she's, and I, and I asked her, I said, is this girl black? She said, yes. And so I was talking to a, a white friend and I said, is she, is she a dark skinned black girl? She said, yes. I said, you have to understand that the reaction she's having may not just be to you. It may be to a lot of the layers, a lot of the pressures that are put on her because she is a dark skinned woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of things that she navigates that you may never, you would never understand because of your proximity to mm -hmm. the rightness, the whiteness. And then mm -hmm. right there up at the top is the white male. And so mm -hmm. you, so in order to be able to understand all these, you have to kind of step back and say, how is this affecting? You speak about communicating across in terms of anti-racism, anti-racist communication. You mm -hmm. do speak about that, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you navigate that kind of education when you're doing it. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say, just going back to your last point, which I think is the foundational, is actually the idea that like you can't understand. And I think for me, that was the biggest stumbling block because I like to understand stuff. And if I don't understand it, it's hard for me to believe it's real. <laughs> you know? If it's not happening to me or I can't read about it and I can't really get it, you know, it's not, which is ridiculous. And I, and I don't think that you're alone in that. And that's one of the things that we kind of fight against, right? All the yes. time when in this sphere in yes. educating is that, you know, just because you can't understand it doesn't happen to you doesn't mean it's not real. 
That's right. And so, you know, for me, that was a struggle. And I know I've made a lot of mistakes, especially years ago when I was kind of going through this process. I don't believe in being woke. I talk in my book about how that's ridiculous. I, I call it woking because I think if you're a white person, you can't be like, and now I understand race completely. Like it's a lifetime, <laughs> you know, right. it's a lifetime journey. Um, right. It's, before, an, it's an active verb. <laughs> it's exactly it's active and um in fact one of my students came up with the phrase uh folk which is faux in white uh woke together <laughs> so right. and and he's like don't be a folk white person <laughs> actually they i'm sorry they're, not, they're they, non-binary but yeah. um but in terms of um the way i approach it I, I always believe people should play to their strengths my biggest strength is really how do we communicate our emotional life how do we move in space and so I do, and and how do we see the world? Because that's sort of the space I've been in throughout my life. And so I look at it in three parts. The first part is understanding that you have had privileges that you don't understand that you have. And that's the first thing. And I call that the metaphorical porch. And the reason why is, the reason I came up with that phrase is I was biking once and I had a neighbor and I biked up to his house. Of course, I have leisure time. He's my neighbor. We're in this neighborhood and it's predominantly white. It's predominantly professors in this small little college town I live in. And I said, hey, my daughter's applying to college. Can I talk to you about this? And he said, sure, I'm on admissions. Come on up. I sat on his porch. He talked to me for about an hour. I then told my daughter and my daughter said, oh, you know, they're house cleaners, daughters in my grade. And I said, well, you know, you should encourage her to have her mom ask this person, we'll call him John, this same question. And this woman had never gone to college, her daughter's first generation, she's a brown young woman. And so I asked Ella what had happened, my daughter, and she said, this is why she doesn't talk to teachers because this is the kind of thing that happens to her all the time. And I guess the mother went up to this guy and said, you know, my daughter's first gen, we don't know what to do. Do you have any advice? And he said, oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I'd love to help you. And then he said, it still makes me want to cry when I tell the story, but he said, tell your daughter to work very hard. And so I, I, you know, that moment was like, oh, I got an hour of mentorship and I don't even need it as much. And they got one sentence. Yeah. They got one sentence work hard. And some people go through life getting one sentence. And what some people go through life, getting hours after hour after hour on the metaphorical porch. And then we wonder why we're doing better, you know? And so to me, I tell that story. And that's the first step. And then then I go into actually the mechanics of communication. So how can you tell if you're power playing someone? How can you tell if someone's feeling they're being power play, looking at body language. And I talk about all of this in my book. Mm-hmm. And then I end with giving, you know, concrete phrasing that you can use so that you're not right. power playing people. And then the final thing I talk about is the cycle of failure, particularly if you're an employer and rethinking that because often when we have people who don't come from our background, we assume mm-hmm. that yeah. they have of information from their more metaphorical ports that we do. And so when they mess up, we just think they they're being, you know, quote lazy or they're being sloppy or instead of, huh, okay, I wonder what I didn't prepare them for. I wonder what they don't know. And then reshift rethinking that and figuring out 
how to use failure as an opportunity for validation and growth rather than mm -hmm. shaming. And right. so that's sort of the main, that's very, very, very big uh, outline of how I approach anti-racist work. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, the response that you said that she received, because that response is the response that we get passed down all the time. Mm -hmm. Work hard, work really hard. Even when you're already in a position at a job and you go in and you bite that bullet, you, you just get in there and you ask for what you want or what you need and you are told work hard your time is coming and you still watch people who come in after you go past you within the workforce it is incredibly frustrating and infuriating yeah yeah you know but it's it it's definitely something like you said it's like you don't see it until you do see it then you can't unsee it. And now what do you do with it? That's right. I think sometimes people have a hard time with the now, well, what can I do? And then they just kind of let it go. It's like, well, I can't mm -hmm. do anything. They, they let their power go. They, they relinquish their power. They relinquish their privilege and say, eh, that's just how it is. Right. So it's kind of, it's, um, I, I find that very, very interesting. I mean, I, I think that if you truly do start to understand this, you can't say, uh, whatever. I think people who say, uh, whatever, don't actually understand it. Um, and, you know, and I think that it's that you have to get to this incredibly difficult and painful place of you don't know what you don't know and yes. being okay with that. And then the other thing that um, I have spoken with my friend Kim about is that when people who are white uh, start to understand isms a little better and they kind of go through this process of being, you know, Kim calls it being asleep versus being awake, but, you know, and I think you keep waking up, but you do kind of, I would say I was kind of in a coma before. <laughs> um, I think, <laughs> yeah. once, you know, once you come out of that, I feel like I don't know a single person who's gone through that process who hasn't become really passionate about this. And but what she says is people actually go through a process that is similar to a death, like the stages of grieving that you experience when someone dies, because you realize that the world you lived in that you thought was real is not really the world. Right. And you have to grieve that world and go through the pain of that. And I think that's why a lot of people go, ah, because when they start to get to a level of understanding, yes. they say, this is hard for hard. me. <laughs> and then they back up. And I saw that after George Floyd. And I've seen that so long that I kind of saw it coming. I yeah. saw all people on the street and everybody was so engaged. And I do think there were a lot of people who have grown from that experience. But I thought, nope, I know a lot of people are going to step back. And my very kind of callous way of joking about it is I felt like a lot of my fellow white women sort of went, you know, this is becoming quite hard for me. I think I'm going to go to Starbucks and just not. <laughs> You know, because <laughs> it's hard for not. me. It's really hard for me to learn about what happens to you. So I think I'm going to not. And yes. I mean, I, and I understand it because it's very painful. So while I'm poking fun, I do understand it, but it's yeah. not fair. It's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's often an argument. It's like, well, it's, it's that 
that in and of itself shows us your privilege. You can say, oh my gosh, this is so uncomfortable. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Right. Whereas <laughs> for those who can't see, <laughs> she just flipped her hair, which is not <laughs> flippable. <laughs> You know, but it's, you know, it's that. And then it's like, I'm done. I'm just going to move on. And yet then get triggered or feel, feel that knee jerk reaction when someone points that out to them, you know, or when someone says, I thought you were doing this or what happened to that. And they're like, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I have a story about that. So I was, that was one of my revelatory moments, just what you're describing. I was talking to a girlfriend and she, I don't even know what I was talking about. I probably blocked it out, but I said something kind of dumb and she was a black woman and she goes, I got to stop you because you're being really white right now. And I went, no, 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 no. Let me explain. No, you don't understand. No, 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 no. And she, and then she goes, I got to stop you because now you're being even whiter. She said, and then she said, when a black woman tries to tell you about her experience, your only job is to shut up and listen. And That's listen. your only job. And I just was like, it was one of those moments where I went, oh, and in, you know, I've now used this example to explain it to white women. I'm like, well, yeah, when you try to explain something to a man and he doesn't get it and says it's in your head, how do you feel? Now you need to extrapolate. It's it's just the same principle. Just believe people. Just believe people, you know? Right. Believe people when they tell you, you know, what's what's going on, what's happening. You talk about I noticed, you know, as I was as I was uh trolling you, probably <laughs> call it Google stalking. I do it all the time. <laughs> I'm stalking you. <laughs> <laughs> but you talk about you used to want to make yourself small. Mm-hmm. And of course, this was because of your history. And I would like for you to explain that a little bit. But you used to want to make yourself small and, and hide from the world. But you realize that being small is dangerous, mm-hmm. right? And it makes you vulnerable, not invisible, because what you were trying to do was be invisible. So I heard that from you. And I would like for you to explain that context but here's my other question for you mm-hmm. i'm a black woman mm-hmm. right and as such the world is always asking me to be small mm-hmm. what ideas or what thoughts do you have for me about not being able to walk in my shoes but wanting to address all women in terms of mm-hmm. that smallness that you know, for me, that the world requires of me in order to think of me as okay, versus being who I am, being out and and then being considered too much, too big, too loud, too mad, too, mm-hmm. too, too all, all the things, too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, the first thing is for me. Uh, as I said, my mother was paranoid, schizophrenic, and uh, when I was four and a half, she took me illegally uh, from New York to Texas, and then twice from New York to California. And one of the times to California, we hitchhiked across the country by truck, from truck stop to truck stop to truck stop. And um, what I have my own Me Too stories from that, hearing things happening mm. to my mother, and I 
very quickly decided that the safest thing to do would be to be invisible. Yeah. Uh, and so little girls, of course, are taught to be invisible from the time mm. we're little, you know, put your toes together and smile and be nice and don't interrupt. And so when you're told to be invisible by the world, and then you've also experienced this thing where you felt like you had to be invisible, yeah. uh, it, it's very hard to then undo that training. And it takes a long time. And I, in high school, I probably looked to most people like I had undone that training, but I was doing a lot of flirting and being cute and funny and self-deprecating, which isn't a bad thing, but I was doing it because I didn't feel like I could just say, no, it's this. And I don't need to make a joke or smile or be cute, you know, or zany. Right. I can just say right. it's this. And yeah. um, I did that with my closest friends, but in groups, I definitely didn't. And it wasn't until my head injury where that changed. So for me, I think that's important, but I do think there's that other, obviously there is a privilege to how much you can be in your power. And what I, uh, what I have seen is that every time we walk in a room, depending on who we are, it's a different for everybody. We mm -hmm. put ourselves on a scale mm -hmm. and on one side is complete emotional safety. And on the other is dire and total physical danger. And most of the time we are not in that position. Although I would say people of color experience dire physical danger. Unfortunately, they have a higher probability of experiencing that in their lives. But most of the time we spend navigating that the middle and trying to push ourselves toward emotional safety because we're never totally, very rarely do we feel a hundred percent emotionally safe in a, in a room. So when you figure out where your scale is, which we do, we just don't know we're doing it. Then the question is, how safe am I to attack this head on? Or do I need to take a different route? And a great example of that is interruptions. So I have two approaches for interruptions. One I call Mortal Kombat, because as I told you in the beginning, I'm a sci-fi nerd. <laughs> sci <-fi -er. laughs> so, and that is just hitting it head on. That's just looking at someone and saying, you interrupted me. You've continuously been interrupting me, stop. But of course, then we know what happens is they say, you're overreacting and angry and crazy. And then you say, oh, often what happens is it's, you know, the thing happens, you call it out. The person says you're crazy and, and angry and whatever. You say, sorry. And then they say, it's okay and forgive you. Then you walk away feeling bananas and they walk away learning absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> like you rinse, repeat, right? So it's this like terrible, <laughs> terrible cycle. So, you know, so how, so you might have to uh, know that's where you're headed and are you ready to make sure that you interrupt that? So it's like several choices. So, and that is going to be different for everyone. Then the other kind of uh, interruption technique is a way in which you do it that you actually build allyship while you're doing it and you visually cue the person and you do it several times so that by the time they interrupt you for the fourth time, you've built allyship or you've made them so aware that you've sort of so by social capital earned it. And you can say, whoa, 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 I just tried these other three things and then you've done this a fourth time. So what I try to do when I'm working with people is understand that what works for me is not necessarily going to work for you and make sure that I honor that and talk about alternatives to how do we do this? Do we build an, do we build an ally? You know, do we build allyship? Do we try a different technique that it will be safer for us? I mean, using the most horrific example, if I'm pulled over by a police officer and they are disrespectful to me, I'm going to be able to do a lot more in terms of saying, hey, you can't talk to me that way my life is not in danger. 
Mm-hmm. And I would never tell a black woman to right. respond as I would, because it could be life and death for her. So yeah. we have to understand. And that's one of the things that actually drives me bananas about most communication coaching is yeah. it's usually someone who's like, everyone should do this thing. And I'm like, really? Because we all are received the same way. So that makes yes. sense. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, we can be as outspoken or as, you know, we, we have ideas, we're smart, we can, we can do things and we have these capabilities, but we, we always have to kind of go roundabout, roundabout the bush, roundabout, roundabout, you know, it's, it's always a longer process for us to be able to step into our power, so to speak. I mean, if we look at, at, at women, like, Let's take Stacey Abrams, for example. Mm-hmm. If you were to ever sit down with Stacey Abrams, now seeing her and the power she wields and the, the things that she can accomplish mm-hmm. right now, she will tell you that along the way, she had to go through a lot of shit to get there. A lot more than most people would ever have to go through in order to reach that level of respect that she has garnered. So yeah, you're right. It, it just takes, it's a roundabout. Yeah. And it's a communication is not one size fits all. And, right. you know, whenever I hear someone say, oh, my communication coach said everyone should, I am like, run, <laughs> run. <laughs> it run. Not be. Uh, you know, I mean, another great example is our vice president in the debate. My phone blew up because she actually looked as if she was acting out something I teach all the time. But, you know, when she put her hand up and said, you know, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking, speaking. I'm speaking, you know, if she had been Elizabeth Warren, she would mm-hmm. not have had to smile at him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she yes. knew, she knew mm-hmm. exactly what would happen if she didn't. Mm-hmm. And so she added that smile in order to give that message of, you know, you can't accuse me of being aggressive or angry. Mm-hmm. And right. that was smart. That was a very good move on her part, but it wasn't mm-hmm. fair that she had to do that. She should right. be able to show her anger and say, yo, like, stop with the interruptions, you know? Right. So, you know, and that kind of brings me, brings us to this kind of idea that emotions are only for certain people. Only certain people are allowed to have and to express emotion. When people are marching because People are dying in the streets. Black men are getting killed by police officers and for no reason. And people sleeping in their beds are getting shot up by the police and not getting ambulances called for them. And people are mad. That's a problem. But when people storm the Capitol, try to take over the government, actually try to kill the vice president and the vice president-elect, that's exercising your rights like I, yeah. that was like a, that was like a white privilege fest. That was insane. That was just like, we, we get to do anything. It, it, and I thought to myself, if people cannot see it here, they're just not going to see it. But everyone is at a different level of understanding. And I get that. And I just want it to not be like that. I want it to be where people just accelerate their learning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the funniest thing that was going all over the news was that I'm sure you saw that woman who they said, oh so what gosh. are you doing here? And she's like, my name is blah, blah, blah. I'm from blah, blah, blah. And, blah, blah, blah. and they're like, yes, it's a revolution. Like, why are you, it's a revolution. And I'm like, 
Girl, what did you think was going to happen? It's a, that's what a revolution. You revolution? have blood on you. Like what? Like, and, but what was so, what was heartening about that is that I, and I do think that came from some consciousness raising this summer is that there were white people who were like, okay, that's one bridge too far. Like, that was, you know, <laughs> that's not, that's a little crazy. So right, and I right. don't know if people would have put that together before. I just right. don't. I, you, you have to wonder. Thankfully, you know, there's more and more information out there, more and more information being shared. But yes, you have to wonder. So I would like to pivot just a little bit. You wrote a book and you want it to be for all women, mm-hmm. right? And not to self-identified feminists. As, and I think that these were kind of your words. When we talk about feminism or we talk about feminists, I often want to stop people and say, wait, 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 there's, there are different feminisms and mm-hmm. we need to differentiate what you're talking about. And so would you talk to what you mean by not the self-identified feminists? And also, would you touch upon white feminism, because that is something that I've shared with people, but I would like for you to talk about it from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I think is that I, I personally believe that every human should be a feminist. And I, I, so I'm going to start with that and then pivot to what you're saying. You know, okay. the woman who did Wonder Woman says, you know, of course I'm a feminist because if I'm not a feminist, I'm a sexist. Um, and, you know, <laughs> right. And then Maya Angelou has that great one. I, you know, I'm a feminist. I've been a woman my whole life. It would be ridiculous or something to that effect for me not to be on my own side. So, you know, yeah. so I think that's important, but, but the problem is twofold and for a lot of white women, that word has been used to shut up women. You know, if you're a feminist, then there's an association that you're, you know, you hate men and there's all this wonderful stuff that they've put around that part to make women go, oh, no, 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 I'm not a feminist, but I believe in equal rights. I'm not a feminist, but, and it's, and it's a great way. If you tell people the word that really defines looking for your rights makes you angry and hating men and all these things, that's a great way to stop people from looking for their rights. So that's, that's the first thing. The other piece of that, of course, is that the white feminist movement is a, it has a history of white supremacy. And we have been, we have been advancing our own agenda at the expense of our sisters and at, in the best case of scenarios, without a thought about our brown and black sisters, but often it's at their expense. And so why, so for me, I always say I'm an intersectional feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Audrey Lord has that great saying that, you know, we don't live single issue lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we can't possibly, so much of feminism is like when a woman this with no thought that, you know, you're really saying a white woman, that's what you're yes. saying. Right. And so for me, that was really important. Um, There's actually, my daughter has this saying on her wall in college, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, but there's a woman named Flavia, uh, I think it's Dizon, D-Z-O-D-A-N, and Mm -hmm. she says, my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And that's basically what I think. My feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. It will be bullshit. Right. And I, and I agree with that. I think that 
Uh, I just saw something today. Someone posted something today or posted. Anyway, I saw it uh, that said that Black women have never fought for only their rights without regard to what is needed racially, societally, right? right. So during the, the suffrage movement, when they were, when they were sidelined from the white women's suffrage movement, it was because they weren't only talking about let's get the vote for black women or women. They were saying, but we also have to address these issues in the black community. So they've never only fought for the black woman. They've always fought for the community. And so you know, I thought it was important that that kind of be talked about in that we we have to realize that a lot of times when we're talking about these things, when we're fighting for these things, if it's not intersectional, it's bullshit because it's bullshit. there's so much that needs to be taken into consideration. And I find that maybe com- companies think it's just too hard to be equitable because there are different things to be taken into consideration. It's too hard to be equitable. When in reality, <laughs> you flip the hair again. <laughs> it's hard for me. It's too hard. It's so hard for me that it's hard yeah, for you. For me, <laughs> yes. But in reality, there are things that can be put into place that are not that hard. Mentoring programs are not that hard. Bringing someone in and making them feel a part of the team should not be that hard, but it yeah, is. But it is. And, and I actually think it shouldn't be, but we do so little education in this country. I mean, I actually just yes. wrote an, you know, an article about that, um, which I'm hoping to put out soon, which is about why I don't like Women's History Month. And I actually don't like Black History Month and I don't like all those things. And it's not that yes. I don't think they shouldn't be because I think they should be now, but they should never have to be. And the reason- They should never doing- have to be stopped. They should always be ongoing. Everything. Exactly. It's not just because what it does is it, it fragments history. That's right. So it says that, oh, this- history here happens, but it's not as important as the overarching history that you're going to learn about that's going to center the white man and the, co- the, the colonizer and all of that. That's right. This little thing here happened. No, it's all interweaved. So this should all be all the time. Right. It should be every day should be women's history. Every day should be black history. You know, this country was built on the backs of black people. You know, I mean, it's just in, and it's, but what that does is everyone's like, well, you're 50% of the population. So you get one twelfth. Congratulations. And you black people, you also get one twelfth. Be so happy. And it's like, no, 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 no. Then you're left, let everyone off the hook for the other 11 months of the year. And you know, same with queer history. I mean, that, that is part of our culture and we should have that integrated. And I think, you know, one of the things I was talking about in this thing is, you know, when, why are we not, for example, talking about middle passage and what that was? Most people don't even touch on that. And yet, and I am, I've lost family in the Holocaust. So I'm not trying to in any way degrade what happened in the Holocaust because it was atrocious. But when we're talking about American history, we often talk about the Holocaust, which was in Europe. And we talk about all the people who died. All of this stuff is absolutely valid. We should take the model we use for the Holocaust and we should apply it to Middle Passage. 
Yeah. We should apply what happened because just that trauma alone explains so much. And we, we just don't, we don't talk about the fact, you know, we talk about these great men who do these millionaire things. I was just right re researching this and I, it's all these millionaires were happening and everybody's applauding these great entrepreneurial men when women, the moment they were married, lost all ability to have any financial power whatsoever and couldn't have done that if they wanted. And why are we not talking about that? And why are we not talking about some of these men built their fortunes because they were selling enslaved people, you know? Right. So it's like all of these things were just, were, to me, it's not history what we teach. We teach propaganda and what we teach is like yes. what to value and what we value is a very specific model of what success means and yeah. who and why it happened and what, and what we should actually, uh, you know, uphold as important to me the oral history of a slave is just as important as what bill was passed that year by people in Congress. It's, it's part or else you're basically what you're saying. I'm going to rant about this, but it just annoys me so much. But what you're basically saying <laughs> is all those people didn't exist. Yes. We we're invisible until mm -hmm. suddenly we could actually participate in commerce, which is insane to me. Insane. Right. Yeah, and which, you know, which is why I get so incensed when people say things like, well, why don't they just move out of that neighborhood? Or why don't they just, well, why, you know, if I can do it, why can't they get that job? You know, because when we get into that job, then you're questioning how we got into that job, right? I've always known as a Black woman, as a Black person, that I needed to be 10 times better than the next person in order to get the same job. I've always known that. That's something that we're, we're told incessantly growing up. We're told that because it's how things work. And even if you still get that job, someone in there is thinking, oh, that's affirmative action. Oh, we had to lower our standards. Oh, you know, so what, what is the standard? What is the standard based on? There's so many things that we say and that we think that we don't realize simply centers whiteness. Mm. To lower our standards, what are we lowering our standards from and for what and why? Mm -hmm. If you think about it, you have to say in your mind, you have to say, oh, well, I think that the standard is white men. Therefore, I feel that we had to lower our standards in order to. And right. if you can confront yeah. that, right? If you can confront that, maybe then you'll realize that you are in the matrix and you need to get out. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that it, that is absolutely 100% true and people just, but it's very, very, very hard. It's hard because you have to then suddenly go, oh, you mean I got some advantages here? And it's hard to self-reflect on that and realize that. And it's, it's, painful sometimes, but you know, it, we have to do it. It is. It's true. And I say that too, people have to dismantle the system that is benefiting them, that they've never realized was benefiting them and that they think yes. that they're fighting against, but they're not. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things about women's history month or black history month is I notice a lot, particularly with women's history month, that they highlight when a woman has stepped into a male arena and succeeded. And that is revered, you know, oh, she's a CEO or she's a this. And, you know, I was thinking, 
my daughter this summer, I've read Angela Davis's work and I thought I knew Angela Davis. And then my daughter, who is really, really uh, committed to anti-racism and um, working on immigration, all these things in college, she's kind of her passion. She called me and she said, mom, have you ever seen Angela Davis's uh, talk from jail? And mm. I went, no, I mean, I think I've heard of it. She said, you've never seen that mom? And I said, uh. so she's like, oh, this is just an outrage. And she sent it to me and I watched it. <laughs> Yeah. And it basically deconstructs, I mean, these people, she's in jail being interrogated and she goes into professorial mode and schools these people on race and violence and all the intersection of all of these things and oppression. And I'm thinking this should be right up there with some of the most famous orations in our nation's history. And I did not know it existed because we don't highlight people who are working to dismantle oppression. We yeah. highlight people who are working within the system of oppression who are succeeding. Say it again, sister. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's true. And I, I often think about that. I'm like, so, you know, and then if you think about it, it's like, oh, she's the first woman to do this. Well, did she do that? Because she was absolutely head head and shoulders above everyone else like exceptional or was she given the space to do that mm -hmm. right was jackie robinson the first because he was above and beyond all those other players who were in the black you know the negro baseball league the black baseball league or was he simply the first given the space and the opportunity to do that yeah. it's incredible to me that people think that the the first of anything is oh my gosh and i am not diminishing anybody's no no uh, of course not achievements but what i'm saying is that person behind that person or or just in the same kind of line as that person are hundreds of others who were simply dismissed because they didn't look speak or have connection or whatever it was to get to that place they didn't get Absolutely. that space it's, it's right and it's and it's um just so prolific i mean it's just everywhere it it, it, it permeates every part of our society uh, i do mentoring i'm a cookhouse fellow at cornell and i and before the pandemic i did a lot of mentoring of young women, they'd come to my, they, you're supposed to go out and do like paintball, but I don't, I don't do stuff like that. I was like, no, can we just have them come to my kitchen? Can, where, I know, can I use my budget for cheese and crackers? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? so, so they all came to my house and I became very close with them, uh, a lot of them. And so we, actually one of my groups, my favorite, um, we have, I saw the thread, they named it Convos in the Kitchen. <laughs> they're, oh. they're, they're, yeah, they're mine, but they're actually in my book. But one of the things that I have noticed also is, you know, it's all about these, you know, connection versus con connection to connection to connection to connection. And if you have those connections, you just take it for granted that that's yeah. the way it is. Yeah. You don't understand that that is literally what is propelling you. Yeah. And for me, I know, especially because of actually my teacher teaching acting, that I have a lot, I have a vast network. And I know that I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you right now if I didn't have that vast network because that there are about eight degrees of separation. They got me in touch with somebody who could help me with this, with this, with this. They got me, you know, to do 
my book, you know, and all of those things. And if you don't have any of that, you are at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, I, one of my most heartbreaking stories is I, you know, I go to MIT every year and I work with kids who, well, I say they're kids because I'm old, but they're young people. <laughs> um, but uh, they, I still call my kids kids and they're like, yeah. Um, but uh, I work with young people and they are first geners and young people of color. And I often end up mentoring one of them and leaving, you know, having connected with one of them. And one of the people told me, this is somebody, I got to be really careful not to give away any detail, but he is a young brown man. He is from a background that I'm, I won't tell the story, but it, if I told it to you, you wouldn't believe it was true. It's so challenging. And one of those schools, zero kids, you know, go to an Ivy League ever. So mm. obviously it is a, he reminds me of a kid, uh, you know, in Goodwill Hunting, just this sort of like brain that just blows your mind open. Every day he says to me, people say, you, you must feel so lucky to be here. Every day he hears, you're so lucky to be here. And I said to him, I will call him John, that's my catch-all name, but yeah. uh, I said, John, they're lucky to be here. They were born, they won the parent lottery. They were born into a situation where they had every advantage. You are not lucky to be there. You, you are there because of hard work. They're lucky to be there. And, it, and, you know, he, but it's, and he said, I know that in my head, but when you hear it every single day, day in and day out, it starts to get to you. And it, it and, you know, if he didn't have me, I have been helping him with like cover letters and things like that. NYU is one of the best programs out there to support people who are coming in who are not the, you know, typical white privileged kid. And yet he's still, you know, they can't possibly help every kid with every cover letter. And the disadvantage that he had would have had if he hadn't had just happened upon me is, and it's not that I'm doing anything special. I'm literally doing something that like, every parent with privilege does, but he doesn't have parents, literally, that are around. So he doesn't have that option. And so the world would have lost his voice just because of little things like what he wears to an interview, you know? And it's just, it's so grossly unfair. It's so grossly unfair. And um, I think until we change that as a society, we are losing so much brain power that could be out there making the world better and innovating. And that's what really kills me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that a lot of incredible humans are being lost to systems that are not built for them because mm -hmm. they've never been thought of as being part of it. I asked in my group, I said, what is legacy to you? What do you, what do you consider legacy? And I got a few answers. And then I told the story of my friend, she's uh, watching Antiques Roadshow. And I said, I ever noticed how all those people are always white, all of the people who are always finding these things or who have had these things passed down to them. And now they're saying, oh, this is $50,000 worth $50,000. And this is worth it. This woman was on there and she, the three vases and the, and the crate that they were in all came up to about $250,000 worth of value. And the thought was legacy. And also when you think about these, these Ivy League schools, 
they have legacies, right? They have students who go in there because their parents were there and their great grandparents and their grandparents, right? It doesn't matter if they're the worst student on the block. Oh, they're in no matter what, right? And yet a black or brown student gets in there after having been told you have to be 10 times better and they are and they get in there and they're still looked at as they took our spot. We lowered the bar. What did they do? Affirmative action and that sort of thing. So you're right. That privilege that is invisible to so many, it permeates everything. It permeates so much. I I actually have an answer to that now. When people say affirmative action is terrible for colleges, I say, you're right. It is. It is absolutely horrible because it's just so unfair that there's an entire group of people who are in a special pile who get lowered standards just because their family has been there for several generations and gave money to the school. And that's just completely unfair. And that is, (laughs) we really need to stop that because they're taking the spots of people who really worked hard to get there. (laughs) That's my answer. (laughs) Because that is the most affirmative action that happens in the colleges. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow that one. Yeah, <laughs> if you don't mind, <laughs> please. Everyone can take it. <laughs> oh my goodness! So we've talked a lot about a lot of different things. Is there anything that you would like to talk about that I haven't that we have not touched upon, but that you would like to bring out right now? This um, is this is your moment. Yeah, Um, I just like this conversation so much. Um, I guess the one thing I do is important to me to say is that when I had, when I tried to get this book out there, I got a lot of pushback from people because the last one fifth of the book is about race and isms and calling out white women to make sure that we're not participating in white feminism. And what I heard a lot from people was, but this is a book about women. Um, (laughs) And and I was like, yes, indeed, true. That is why there's (laughs) this entire part of the book because it is indeed about women. Um, And I think that what I'm hoping will happen with this book is that people will purchase it and they will tell their friends about it and it will send a message actually to publishers that until we start doing books that are truly intersectional, like th- we are, we're cordoning off people into these categories and there should be, every book should be integrated for all women. And so if you read this book and you like it, please, you know, even if you don't buy it, even if your friend gives you the copy, tell a friend about it. So they put a review up and say, I loved this, that we did this because I did some radical things and not radical, but I did some things in the book that aren't typical for this kind of book. Um, it starts out really basically, we talk about posture and voice. We move into, you know, anti-mentors and then we move into micro and we kind of keep going and we keep building and building and building, working yeah. toward the Ebuchadnezzar throughout the book. Um, <laughs> but um, at the end of the book, the last chapter of the last part, I actually hand the book over. And that's one of the things I'm most proud about uh, is, and I hope actually at some point, uh, maybe we can talk after the show, I want to get these young women out there uh, and I want their voices to be heard. Mm-hmm. But I, the combos in the kitchen, young women that I talked to you about, yes. I, I messaged them and I said, is there, if there's one thing you could say to white women, what would you say? And we, I got this wonderful text thread and it was so good 
that I asked my friend, Dr. Nia Nunn, you know, I kind of want to just put them at the end of the book. Is that crazy? And she said, no, you have to centralize their voice. That, that, that's what this part is about. You can't end on you, you. And so I asked them, is it okay if I use your words at the end and uh, not edited, just mm -hmm. hand the last part over to you? And they said, yes. And so the mm -hmm. book ends with their insights, which are so brilliant and wonderful and heartfelt. And there are two things I'm really proud about with that. The first thing is I think we need more books that centralize young voices mm -hmm. because we, unfortunately, until you're quote accomplished, you can't get in a book, which means the voices of young people are invisible and they are not able to claim space. And young people have a lot of important things to say. So that was one of my first, you know, my goals is to get a young, fresh voice and because they are the experts, right, of their experience. And then the other thing was that they're young women of color. So mm -hmm. I wanted to centralize young black and brown women. And I, I hope when people read this, they, it will help shift their idea of what feminism is and open the idea of the possibility that, as I say in the book, you know, if we can look at feminism from the perspective of when we rise together, we rise so much higher or mm -hmm. 50% of the population, that would be completely transformative. And I think for me, that's sort of the last thing that I would, I would want to say is we have to rise together. That's the only way we're going to do this. Awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to reading your book for sure. I will also have all of your links and information down below in the show notes for this podcast. And yes, you can tell me all of the information, the extra information for these young women that you would like me to put in the show notes. I would gladly do that as well, because I do believe that more people's voices need to be centered because more perspectives are needed. I'm all about equity. And equity cannot happen when you have only one perspective, right? It's kind of like you're looking at that box with the six or the nine. You're standing over here and here. One's like six, one says it's nine. Who's right? They're both right. But it just depends on your perspective, right? It depends on how you're looking at it. It depends on how you're processing it through your upbringing, your, your cultural perspective, so many things. And having more perspectives means more creativity, I think that it just means so much more for everyone when everyone's voice is, is, is there. Yeah. And I really appreciate you sharing your space with me. This was really uh, wonderful. And I, I always learn something every time I'm on one of these podcasts. So I really oh, appreciate that as absolute, well. It's absolutely my pleasure. So I have a question that I ask all my guests before they mm -hmm. leave. And because this is diversity dish and we've been dishing a lot on a lot of things, <laughs> uh, but I would like to know what is your favorite dish? Oh, um, I, that's a tough one. I'm Italian. I'm half Italian. We don't mess around like you with our carbohydrates. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> um, what is my favorite dish? Um, well, I, I am a chocoholic, so there's that, but I Ooh. think... Uh, yeah, I love that. Um, boy, I have so many. That's a tough one. I think I will go with my most sentimental dish, which is that um, my mom would have these periods of sanity when she yeah. was in the hospital, when she was on her meds before she left, but she was stabilized. And on the phone once, she taught me our secret gnocchi recipe. 
Oh. And it's Italian gnocchi. It's ricotta, which is really the best way to do it. And, yeah. um, and she taught me the secret way to get the sauce to stick onto the gnocchi. And um, whenever I make gnocchi, I think of her. So good gnocchi. Yes. Good gnocchi. That's, that's the way to go. I love it. Sounds delish. It is. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Diversity Dish today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Did you enjoy that episode? If so, please remember to download, rate, review, and share. It's the only way that the word is going to get out. If you'd like to be entered to win a copy of Eliza's book, A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, go to the Facebook group, Dishing on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and enter below the image there. You can also enter via Instagram under Diversity Dish and the image that you'll find there also about the contest. Looking forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.